Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Some people claim that active managers can capitalise on market crashes to beat the benchmark. But do they really save us from being savaged by bears? The analysts at S&P Dow Jones have been hard at work on their updated index versus active scorecard. And the numbers for 2022 are hot off the press. The latest data reveals that UK active funds experienced their worst underperformance on record. We dig into the report to find out why. And in today's dumb question of the week, does passive investing work for emerging markets? Okay, let's get into it. So Romin, we've talked quite a bit in the past about how active management tends to underperform just passively tracking an index on average. But some people were saying that hmm, maybe last year was the year this was going to turn around because it was a bad year for markets. And that's when you need the expertise of a stock picker to help you along the way. But it doesn't seem to have played out like that, does it? No. Now, the idea here is that if you're going to pay somebody an active manager, they should outperform the markets. That's what you're paying them to do. If that's not the case, then you can just buy the market very cheaply and not pay them a very high fee. So that's why this report is so interesting. It shows a fairly consistent pattern across the world and from year to year, where usually what happens is that the passive funds outperform the active ones. And as you say, this year, it was supposed to be the year when things would turn around. Everybody says this time is different. Usually there's an excuse for why they fail. And then, you know, at the beginning of the year, they say this is the year that it's going to outperform. And then it goes back to an excuse at the end of the year. Yeah, because I think what some people were saying is we've had a long bull market for like almost 15 years. And obviously that's tough for an active manager because the passive funds are just soaring away. But when the crash comes, that's when they earn their money and the crash has come. (laughs) But the report shows they haven't earned their money. In fact, as we said in the intro, it was the worst year on record for UK based funds investing in UK stocks. So 92% of UK active large cap funds, so funds investing in the big companies, 92% of them underperformed the benchmark. And when you come to the mid cap stocks, 97% of active funds underperformed their benchmark in 2022. And this was a huge surprise to me when I first learned about this report, because, you know, I had no idea that active managers underperformed. You know, I thought sometimes they'd be an unlucky manager, which perhaps had a bad year. Or that they were just bad managers that didn't do very well. They didn't do their homework properly. But, you know, the good guys, they should be the ones that should be able to find stocks which outperform because, you know, they should be a kind of triumph of hard work and skill over something as simple as a benchmark index. So you might think that just finding the absolute no-hopus stocks and excluding them from your portfolio would automatically mean that you'd outperform. However, that's not the case. Well, it would if you could do it, but people can't seem to do it. Only 3% of mid-cap funds outperformed. Which is even more surprising given that markets are now so transparent. You can just find huge amounts of detail on the accounts of almost any company, certainly listed companies. So I think it's surprising that you can't do that kind of analysis and simply choose the good stocks. Because all the fund managers say, look, we only buy good stocks. Of course, that's what they say. But it's not that simple. Yeah, and it's something we've talked about, you know, a lot in the past. I mean, what's interesting when you look at this report, there's so much detail in there, is that it was a particularly bad year for any equity funds based in Europe. Worst year ever. 
Whereas the fixed income funds, those investing in bonds, actually did a little bit better. They still underperformed the benchmarks, but by no way near as much as the equity funds did. So I think in fixed income, the choices are, if it's just to do with rates moving around, what duration are you going to pick? Are you going to pick long duration? In which case, you're probably assuming that interest rates are going to fall and you want to maximise the gain from falling yields. Because if yields fall, prices go up. And that's the kind of environment where you want really long duration. So if people call that correctly, then they can outperform because the passive funds won't be able to adjust their duration. So I think what this shows is that many of the active managers call that correctly. And that was the only thing you had to get right. Lots of duration or very little duration. Yeah. And I think some people also say maybe the bond market is a little bit more of a rigged market. Like there's much more participation from central banks and other institutions. So maybe there's more inefficiencies to exploit there than inequity. It's only if you can understand what the policy is going to be. For example, if you see inflation is very high, well, it's pretty clear that the central banks are going to be hiking interest rates. But then on the equity performance, I think one of the issues over the last, say, 12 months was to do with sterling and the fact that sterling weakened and actually reduced the fall in equity prices. And many passive funds are not currency hedged. So another choice for active managers is whether they have some kind of currency overlay, which some of them do. Yeah. And obviously, if you're an active manager and you've put a currency hedge in place, and let's say you're investing in US stocks, last year you would have underperformed massively because the dollar strengthened so much. And if you actually look at the stats for UK-based funds and funds based in Europe, they had identical performance, which was 67% of active funds investing in American stocks underperformed. If you look at it on a 10-year period, 98% of European funds investing in America underperformed. So you really can't find an outperforming fund very easily, can you? But what was actually interesting is that active funds based in the US investing in US stocks had their best year on record, I think. So only 51% underperformed. So it was almost a coin toss, right? Because the currency effect didn't matter for them. But also just the structure of the market last year played into the hands of active managers in the US. Because for the last decade, we've seen large cap outperformance. Like if you didn't own Apple, you would have underperformed, basically. Whereas last year, it flipped around and the large caps did worse than the smaller stocks. So what that means, in effect, is if you just randomly picked 20 stocks from the S&P 500 to hold in your fund, on average, you would outperform the benchmark. Because most of the time, you'll pick a small cap rather than one of the mega caps. Yeah. So it's weird that only 49% outperformed, isn't it? And I guess that's due to fees. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. There was a report that was done by Vanguard in Canada. And what they did was to look at the performance, gross performance, but also net performance and compare it with a benchmark. And what they showed was that you might think that it's just the fees that gets rid of the outperformance. You know, there could be some alpha, some outperformance relative to the market. But if the fees are so big that they eat away that small alpha, then the net performance would be negative. And the SPIVA report is net of fees. Yeah. And in fact, one thing to point out is if you look at the returns of any fund, whether it's an ETF or an open-ended investment company, an OIC, those will be net of fees. Because what they do is subtract a tiny bit of the annual fee on a daily basis from the return of the fund. But in fact, what this research found out was that the gross performance is kind of centred around zero. And then when you look at net performance, when you actually subtract the fees, well, that shifts it into negative territory, pretty deeply into negative territory. 
So alpha isn't a case of, oh, there's a small outperformance, but it's eaten by the fees. No, there just isn't a huge outperformance for any active fund. This was for US funds, I should say. Yeah, this is in the aggregate, you mean, right? Yeah, that's right. It kind of makes intuitive sense that the market, if we ignore the passive funds, is just all the active funds competing against each other. And if one outperforms, presumably another one is underperforming. And so it nets to zero and then the fees take it negative. Yeah. So in aggregate, it's a mathematical certainty that you're going to have underperformance in any particular year. To me, it's just so strange that active funds, you know, still have a lot of assets under management, even though there's been this big shift to passive investing, because the maths and the logic and the data from history just shows that you don't get what you pay for with these high fees. But I think marketing is very effective for some of these funds. And I think we just like to have a face behind the fund to have some kind of really larger than life character who seems to know what's going on, that everybody can say, oh, look, you know, look at that performance. This guy really knows, or, you know, that woman really knows what they're doing. Oh, here we go. You're going to sing the hits, are you? (laughs) (laughs) What woman were you thinking of? But don't you think that last year should have been the perfect environment for an active equity fund, right? We've just come off an obvious huge bubble which peaked right at the end of 2021. It was obvious. We knew it. We could see it, especially in growth stocks. And as we've said, the market structure meant just pure randomness was going to benefit you with large cap suffering. If you can't outperform then, when can you? (laughs) Or am I being unfair? Do you not think it was like the perfect scenario for them? Well, everyone, you know, they always come up with some kind of excuse. But, you know, what kind of environment would be perfect for a stock picker? Well, I think if there was an obvious macroeconomic drag, you know, something which really clearly affects some sectors rather than others. Well, in that case, you could make a case that active would outperform. So let's say it's energy costs, right? So energy costs go up a lot. Who's it going to benefit? Well, if someone produces energy, it's going to benefit them. But I think I've just made the case that last year should have been an ideal year because it was a case where energy prices spiked. So, you know, if you'd have just had a tilt towards energy, you'd have done very well. But thinking about it, maybe last year was the perfect year for these fund managers based in the US. They got to almost 50-50 performance with passive funds. And like we said, logically and mathematically, they can't actually get beyond that point on aggregate. So they got as good as they could possibly do, right? (laughs) So there should be celebration. Not in Europe, though, where currency and I guess bad management made them have their worst ever year. But I think what's also interesting is how would you find one of these outperforming funds? Let's assume that they do exist. How would you find one? Well, the only way you can do it is to look at their past performance. And the problem here is that they don't tend to persist these years of outperformance. So let's say you sort all of the funds into quartiles, in other words, into four groups. And the top quartile are the best performing funds, and you just buy those funds. As in the top performing in any one year. Yeah, so this persistent scorecard does it two ways. One of them is to look back over the last year. Another one is to look back over the last three years and then see what funds continue to outperform over the next three years. So we're basically saying, who's at the top of the table when it comes to active management? And are they going to keep winning the league year after year? Yeah, because if they're skillful, they should. Whereas if they're lucky, they shouldn't. What does it show? I'm guessing you're going to tell me they're lucky. (laughs) Yes, that's exactly what it is. And, you know, what you see is that the longer the period you track them for, the more closely they approximate random outperformance. 
So, you know, this is really just a case of being lucky rather than skillful, which makes it so much harder if there is a very good fund to identify it, because it could just be that they were lucky. And how long would we have to wait to decide, actually, they're not lucky? They've done it for, what, 10 years? What what are we waiting for? Well, that's the other problem, which is that you don't realise very quickly. You'd have to wait a couple of years, maybe three years, to work out whether they were just lucky. And the longer you wait, the more likely it is that the one you've chosen won't be an outperformer. But Woodford outperformed for, what, like a decade, right? His UK equity fund, lots of money piled in, and then the outperformance stopped. It's longer than that. I think it was actually 20 years. He ran a kind of income fund and it did very well. And then he launched his own and it went bad. And Bill Miller as well, you know, 15 years of outperformance of the S&P 500 and then that outperformance disappeared. I think the problem is that, you know, you can get lulled into this sense that someone's amazing and perhaps they are amazing, but it's just difficult to remain amazing, either because the manager leaves or because, you know, they change their strategy or maybe they just lose their mojo. But whatever the reason, it's very difficult to to actually choose these funds which are going to outperform if they exist. What's great about the Spiva report is it accounts for the phenomenon of survivorship, because what you typically see in the market is the underperforming funds get culled, right? The fund managers shut them down because they're losing money and people don't want to invest in them. So over the long term, like the ones that are doing better tend to survive for longer. So if you didn't adjust for that, the stats would look better than they actually are. But Spiva, you know, you can't pull the wool over their eyes. But it's amazing. If you look at the persistence scorecard, they actually give the stats on what percentage of funds are liquidated. And there's a 25% chance that a fund in the fourth quartile, in other words, the worst performing funds, will be liquidated or merged into another fund. That's over a three-year period. Yeah, because I saw the stats that over a 10-year horizon, across all active funds, 40% of them were liquidated or merged. And I think what's clear is that investors have realised that passive funds beat active funds generally. And if you look back over the last 25 years, there's a clear turning point where money started leaving active funds and being pushed into passive funds. And that was roughly 2014, I think, when there was a crossing of the lines in terms of money moving out of active and into passive. Yeah, and since that point in 2014, 2015, the lines have just massively diverged, haven't they? So passive has just been hoovering up the money and active funds have been drained of their capital. But that's in the US. And in Europe, people tend to be much less sensitive to the fact that alpha is really hard to come by and probably won't work. But why is that? Why are we not as clued up as the US or as willing to like fully embrace passive funds here? I think in America, people are much more au fait with investing. They're much more actively engaged in it. No pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) Much more passively engaged. (laughs) In America, it's like, you know, 401k schemes. People really take an interest in stock investing. And, And generally, people are much more understanding of how the stock market works. Whereas in the UK, either because people aren't interested or because maybe, you know, they think that the company's going to do it for them, they don't take such an interest or understand what even stocks are. Yeah, and I think in continental Europe, there's even less interest than there is in the UK, perhaps because people rely on their public pensions more. Yeah, and I think people don't trust stock markets in Europe. I don't know if it's because they got burnt in 2008 and they think it's kind of like gambling. And a lot of European stock markets have been stagnant for a long time. Yeah, if you're in Italy, you know, it's very difficult to make the bull case for equities there. 
And we're just not as constitutionally freewheeling capitalists as they are in America, right? It's not our identity quite to the same degree. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it is a kind of political difference between the two. But certainly, whatever the reason, I think it's fair to say that in Europe, we're much less fee sensitive, or at least we used to be. I think in the UK now, it's much more the case that people do look at the difference. And what's interesting about the shift from active to passive funds is that it's accelerating over time. So there's some data that showed that last year, from January to October, passive equity funds on a global basis attracted almost $380 billion, whereas active equity funds around the world lost $215 billion, as in it was withdrawn from the fund. And I think the question people instinctively have there is, does that cause a macroeconomic problem, right? If active funds are the ones that are really involved in price discovery and allocating capital, is it dangerous if too much money goes into passive? And also, as more money goes into passive, does it make it easier for active managers to outperform? I think at the moment, there are kind of funds which blur the lines. And you can have, for example, a value fund, which just almost by an algorithm chooses the stocks which are undervalued. Now, in theory, that could actually do the job of an active manager or perhaps a quality fund. And I think more and more what we're going to see is kind of AI type stock selection where you've got some kind of AI perhaps choosing the stocks. That's got to happen soon. Isn't that just dialing up or down the beta on your passive fund, really? But then you think, well, if that was the case, if it was stock picking rather than just leveraging up or down, well, is that active or passive if it's some kind of AI quant type approach? So if that happens, then you wouldn't need active managers and probably the fee on those funds would be quite low because you don't have to pay a lot for an algorithm. You don't have to pay for its children's private school fees or for its Lambo. You have to pay for its server costs, which are quite big. Yeah, electricity <laughs> costs, but I mean, that's not going to be huge. But I tend to think of those as just another variation of active funds, right? I don't really care if it's a person or an AI. It's still stock picking, right? And in aggregate, the maths show that it has to net to zero. Maybe they're going to be more skilled, but you know. That's true. I suspect it's going to be a battle of AIs in not very many years. And that's what active management will become. But does active management, whether it's an AI or a person, become easier or harder as more money's in passive funds? Because like, I think instinctively people think, oh, it's going to get easier because there's fewer active managers out there competing. Yeah, this is something I learned from Robin Wigglesworth, who wrote Trillions, the book about the birth of index investing, which is a great book. What he said was that actually it gets more difficult over time. And that's because there's consolidation amongst the active managers. The good ones will survive, but the bad ones will just get merged or disappear. It's counterintuitive, but once you grasp it, I think it does make sense. And the fact is everybody has access to this information, which is market moving almost instantaneously. So informational advantage simply can't exist. Or if you do have informational advantage, again, it's usually something which is commoditized. So let's say that you're using some kind of fancy data, which other people don't have access to. It's so expensive to collect that that itself is going to erode your profits as one of these companies or a hedge fund. So let's say you're actually sitting outside a shop and measuring how many people walk into the shop just to see how active their shoppers are. That's going to be pretty expensive to do. Oh, here comes Robin into CNA again. What's he up to now? <laughs> <laughs> I've recently got into Fat Face. Have you heard of Fat Face? Yeah, I know Fat Face. Yeah, I've just branched out to Fat Face fashion. What were you in before? 
No fashion at all, really. <laughs> just whatever people bought you for Christmas. That's right. <laughs> I mean, just to go back quickly to it getting harder and harder for active funds, the way I tend to think of it is like a poker tournament. Early on, before passive investing took off, it was like, you know, there are a thousand people in the poker tournament. The good players are surviving. They're taking the chips off the bad players. And then as you get further and further in the tournament, less and less players, the good players are surviving. You get to that final table at the poker tournament. Now it's really hard to win. That's a good comparison, I think. And they are still gambling, even if skill's involved. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still a net zero sum game, right? Even if there are five players rather than 5,000. I think the other point people sometimes make is that if too much money goes into passive investing, which let's remember is not actually doing price discovery, it's just relying on all the active participants and tracking the average, right? If too much money ends up in passive funds, like does capitalism work? I don't really buy this argument. I think a lot of supposedly passive indices are actually active in a sense, because for example, the S&P 500, you've got to be profitable to be in it. So a company which isn't profitable by definition will drop out and its market cap will fall. And there are other funds out there which are similar, which kind of blur the lines between active and passive. Meb Faber says the S&P 500 is active. <laughs> he just like flatly says it's active. Yeah. I mean, there is a committee that decides what goes in and out. So I think it is active in a way. So I think active and passive are not kind of binary classifications. I think it's more of a continuum. So if you buy a quality fund, for example, well, now you've got about four filters on the stocks that go into it based on profitability, return on equity, how much the earnings are increasing over time, leverage, which doesn't seem like a passive index, although it is rule-based. So that's the difference between the two. But that's going to effectively take out companies which are not profitable, where the management's not doing well. I don't like this blurring of the lines, Roman. I like to just think, Passive, good, active, <laughs> evil. <laughs> I don't like shades of grey. <laughs> okay, here's a pub quiz question for you. How many stocks are in the S&P 500? 502. Oh, you're close. It's 503, according to my Google search just now. <laughs> but why isn't it 500? Well, Google's one of the reasons. I know that. Yeah, you're right. Alphabet has two, what, stock classes? What do you call it? Yeah. But is it 500 companies, but a few of them have like multiple share classes? And I think they changed the rules as to whether you could have more than one share class. And it gets even more complicated, doesn't it? When you have things like passive ESG funds, which again, they're not fully passive, are they? There's someone deciding what is allowed in that index and what isn't, even if it's rule-based. Someone's deciding the rules. And they are arbitrary. You know, there's somebody who sat down to make up the rules, like you say. So I think this kind of active-passive thing is a little bit of a non-starter. The most important thing, I think, is, you know, what's the chance of getting good returns long-term? You know, what are the strategies that are going to work? Now, active funds will track the market. You know, if you buy an equity fund, it's going to do pretty well. But it's doing well because it tracks the market. So you're making someone rich for not doing a job which they claim they're going to do, which I think is just wrong. You know, I think that's Trade Descriptions Act should kind of (laughs) rule that out. Yeah, it's weird because in most parts of life, we think we get what we pay for, right? But in investing, we don't. We get the opposite. Keep your fees low and you'll do much, much better. Which doesn't make sense. It's very counterintuitive. And I think also it's pretty shoddy that people have managed to get away with it for so long. But why can't we have active funds where they literally just get paid, you know, a £100,000 salary or £200,000 salary and there's no percentage fee at all? Like why can't it work like any other industry? Well, it could. It could. I just think that, you know, if you've got the choice, 
then you're not going to kind of reduce your own income. But why haven't fees been driven down by, you know, capitalism and competition? Well, they have. If you look at active management fees, and people call this the Vanguard effect, passive funds came down really quickly once Vanguard started to slash fees. And remember, this was only after Jack Bogle decided it was a good idea, mostly because he had the hump against a company that he'd previously worked for. So it wasn't really for the common good. It was because he was just pissed off, I think. <laughs> yeah, he did everyone a favour just out of spite. I love it. Yeah. But then what slowly started to happen was that active fees came down as well. That's true in America, and I think it's slowly starting to happen in Europe too. Yeah, it seems to be that the really egregiously high fees are only really sustained by funds now where they have some kind of quasi-anti-competitive barriers around the fund, <laughs> either that they're like in a pension fund that you can't leave so they can charge what they want, or it comes bundled with a load of financial advice and other services where you kind of think, oh, I'm paying for that, but I'm also getting this other stuff as well. Now, for I'm paying a 2.5% fee, <laughs> when I could be paying 0.1% or whatever. Or by the number of Nobel Prizes. So, you know, if you've got like six Nobel Prize winners on your board, then, you know, maybe you can charge a bit more. And here I'm thinking about dimensional. I mean, I hope they've got Nobel Prizes in relevant topics and not like Nobel Peace Prizes or something. <laughs> <laughs> or Nobel Prizes for chemistry, yeah. Yeah, I don't want investment advice from someone with a PhD in physics. I don't provide advice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Oh, they do have some amazing people, though. John Mac McQuone and Eugene Farmer. I know Eugene Farmer, but who's the John Mac guy? He was one of the guys that kind of first had the idea of index funds. And he's been at the forefront of a lot of this kind of index research over the years. And this is an active fund, though. I guess the godfathers of passive investing still got to eat, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, but they have factor funds, which are very effective historically. But Farmer is incredible. I mean, he's a guy who came up with the idea of efficient markets. Yeah, and farmers' markets. Oh, very good. But actually, the number of PhDs might be counterintuitively bad because there was LTCM, which famously blew up because of the advice of their Nobel laureates. So they had two Nobel Prize winners. They had Myron Scholes and Robert Merton, both of whom won the Nobel Prize for Economics. Well, and they gave bad advice, which blew up the fund. Well, they created all of the maths behind the Black-Scholes model, which is used to price options. But they didn't manage to stop the fund blowing up, unfortunately. I'm not a big believer in the Nobel Prize. Since they gave the Nobel Peace Prize to Henry Kissinger, I think, <laughs> how much more ironic can it get? Yeah, so here's an interesting factoid, which data nerds would absolutely love. So there's a database called CRSP, the Centre for Research and Security Prices, and they track firms from the day that they issue their stock on the markets to the day that company dies. How does it die? Well, it's via acquisition or bankruptcy. And the question is, what proportion of those companies would have destroyed wealth relative to T-bills? In other words, compared with a cash investment over their entire lifetime. What proportion would have destroyed wealth of all companies ever? Well, I know that a lot of companies fail, don't they? Like, it's risky starting a business. So I think quite a few are going to destroy your wealth. I don't know what percentage. Well, the most frequent outcome is 100% loss. And that's because companies go bankrupt and the value of the equity goes to zero. Charles Darwin is happy. But more than half of the firms destroyed wealth over their lifetimes. And that's over their entire lifetime. So you'd have been better off investing in cash. It's just a tiny tale of companies which are just ridiculously, absurdly successful. These companies really are like finding a needle in a haystack. 
And that's why it is so hard for active managers. Like over the last 15 years, if you just forgotten to put money into Apple as an active manager, you're almost certainly going to have underperformed the benchmark, aren't you? Given that it's such a big slice of markets now. So not only is it a needle in the haystack phenomenon, it's like you have to find all the needles <laughs> if you're an active manager. Which comes back to Jack Bogle's point, which is just buy the whole haystack and that way you get the needles as well. It is counterintuitive though, isn't it? Because in most aspects of life, you think, oh, if I just buy a load of junk because there's the odd gold nugget in there, that's not a good strategy, <laughs> right? <laughs> but for some reason in the stock market, the market as a whole rises, even if most of the companies in there are destroying wealth. But that's why I'm really grateful to people like McQuone, Mac McQuone, who actually created the ability to buy the entire market. Because now you can buy the entire haystack. Previously, you couldn't. But let's just play a hypothetical game here to finish then, Robin. Imagine a world where passive investing is banned somehow. I don't know how. Maybe, you know, the active fund managers bribe the politicians or whatever it could be. It's banned. You can only invest actively. How would you go about choosing a good active fund? Because you have to now, right? You can't passively invest. Well, I'd certainly look at the fees because if they are going to stand any kind of chance of outperforming, then I'd have to choose somebody who wouldn't be charging me too much for it. That would be one starting point. Another one would be based on their attitude towards investing. How do they go about it? You know, what's the process by which they choose stocks? And perhaps the style of investing, whether it's a value approach or whether it's a growth approach and whether I think that's going to work long term. So those would be the kind of things. I mean, really, we'd be trying to look for the active fund, which is as close to passive investing as possible, <laughs> wouldn't we? <laughs> Sneakily trying to get around the law. <laughs> but I think that's probably the way that you classify the funds. You know, what's the fee? What's the style? And what I'd avoid would be going for star managers, because I think that's least likely to outperform and persist, because they either leave the fund or they change their style because that's really the problem here, I think, which is that if it depends on humans, the humans may not be around forever and their style might change. There could be a style drift. Or just maybe they do stick to their style, but the market changes and it no longer works. Yeah, alpha decay. That's what they call it when certain things which seem to work right now stop working. Alpha decay would be a brilliant name for a prog rock band <laughs> if we want to start one. <laughs> OK, and my last question. Let's bring it back to the real world. Let's say we want to passively invest because, you know, everything makes sense to do it that way. How would we choose what index to track? Because we've already said there's sort of active elements to some of these indexes. And there's at least three major providers of different indices. Does it matter, like if we're talking about global equity, for example, which one we're tracking? I think if it is just the drift upwards of equity, then I think the widest coverage is probably the way to go in terms of what corners of the markets are covered by the index. You know, that's what you'd be going for, the largest possible coverage. So I know that some global equity indices include small caps and some don't. And usually the ones that are cheaper don't include the small caps. And I've always thought, oh, does it matter really? Do I want to just go for the lowest fee, even if it's just the large caps that it's tracking? Yeah, they have tricks in order to minimise the fees for the churn of the fund. So if they're tracking an index, they won't buy all of the stocks in the index. You can actually track very accurately while still missing out a large proportion of the small stocks. So I don't think that's absolutely necessary. Yeah, having sampling is OK. I certainly wouldn't sweat it if I had a fund which was using some kind of sampling method. 
But if it's still only sampling from the large caps, you are going to miss any potential outperformance by small caps, right? Oh, yeah. And that's the risk. But if you do believe in small cap outperformance, you can always tilt that way by buying a small cap index. But generally, you're pretty agnostic, whether it's a FTSE indices or an MSCI indices or whatever. Well, by definition, they're going to be very close. There's going to be 5% of Apple in both of those. There's going to be 4% of Microsoft in both of those. And certainly amongst the top 10 holdings, the holdings will be very similar, both in terms of contents and weight. And does it matter once we've selected that index, whatever it might be, which passive fund we choose that tracks that index? It could do, depending on how they replicate the index. Some of them are synthetic, in which case you'll have very efficient treatment of dividends. So you'll probably get a higher return as a result. So personally, I'd go for a synthetic tracker because of the total return being higher. Some people don't like synthetic funds because they're convinced that the banking system is going to blow up and they'll make a loss. So it really depends on your particular biases and beliefs, which is the better fund. Some people favour physical replication. You know, they've got to be able to see that it holds those stocks. Other people have no problem with some derivatives. But definitely find the one with the lowest fee you can, right? That does whatever you're happy with. Passive investors would generally agree on that, I think, yeah. Now, you might think we only discuss passive investing in pension crafts, but in fact, many of our members do invest in active funds, and so do I. So if you want to discuss this and also discuss which your favourite active funds are, you can join the conversation and join our membership at pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is, does passive investing work in emerging markets? So some people claim, oh yeah, passive investing clearly works really well in developed markets. The markets are efficient. There's no real scope for outperformance by active managers. But if it's emerging markets, there's lots of factors at play, which mean that maybe the markets aren't that efficient. You've got erratic and sometimes capricious governance. You've got maybe companies at earlier stages of their life, and you've got less information about the market. So maybe there is fertile ground for active managers. So what do the stats show there, Romin? Well, if you remember previously, we said that the longer the investment horizon you look at, the less active outperformance you get. And in fact, amongst emerging markets, it's the worst. So over a 20-year period, 97% of active emerging market international equity funds underperform the benchmark. So only 3% outperformed. Yeah, this is for funds based in the US investing into emerging markets. And that compares with a general underperformance for international funds of 94%. So yeah, if you look down the table of all the different places US active managers invest, they do worse than emerging markets. It's like passive is better for emerging markets than anywhere else, which again is something that's quite counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, I guess you could say that emerging markets are more likely to be macroed. In other words, something macroeconomic happens, which is going to drag their performance down, regardless of how good the stock selection is. And if it's less predictable, I guess hugging the haystack gives you some relief. Yeah, if you've got a more concentrated bet, there's a higher chance you're going to unfortunately choose some of the losers. But I did come across one small corner of the market where it looks like active managers actually do beat the benchmark. So I look through the Spiva reports and I see why you like them, Roman, because there's literally dozens <laughs> and dozens of these pages of tables, which breaks the market down into every conceivable segment. And the only 
only one in the whole of the Spiva suite of reports I could find where active managers did actually earn their money was emerging market mid and small cap companies. So the example I came across was in India, the active managers investing in mid and small cap companies over a five year period, 55% outperformed their benchmark. And over a 10 year period, it was a coin toss, 50% outperformed the benchmark. And this is net of fees. So on absolute terms, yeah, they are beating their benchmark. But it is still roughly a coin flip, isn't it? Oh, come on, Robin, it's the only example. <laughs> We've got to give them their dues here. We should talk to one of those managers, you know, say, you know, what's the secret sauce? So what could conceivably be causing active managers to do well in this small slice of the market? Well, perhaps it is that foreign investors don't have such good local knowledge of the companies. So there's some kind of local investor advantage, an informational advantage. Yeah, because this is funds based in India outperforming in this section of the market. Or perhaps it's because of random chance, because there are only 60 funds in this category. No, I still think that's enough. 10 years of data, 60 funds, 400 stocks in the index. I'm going to give them the credit. I think they're smart. And there's a lot of dumb money flowing into small Indian equities and they're taking advantage of it. But again, that suggests it's not going to persist. As the market gets bigger, then all the kind of informational advantage will probably disappear. I mean, yeah, if it becomes like other markets, then kind of will go the same route as active managers have gone everywhere. But it is what some people have said about emerging markets and especially frontier markets, like the really small ones, is that you need that on the ground local knowledge you can suss out which companies are favoured by the government, maybe, which has a big influence on getting big government contracts or whatever it might be. Because a lot of people do say that it's a mistake to see most emerging markets as just, you know, small developed markets. They're quite unique in a way, especially when you think of something like China, which is a massive part of emerging market indices, where there's always concern about state-owned enterprises, which are in the stock market, but historically have performed very different to pure private companies in China. So, for example, in China, there are different indices you can buy on there, which include or exclude state-owned enterprises. And until recently, the ex-state-owned enterprises index in China did better. And many people thought that was because of misallocation of capital. They were very inefficient. They weren't really run on behalf of their shareholders. But that's recently turned around, and that's because of the state clampdowns. So presumably the state-owned enterprises were not subject to the same clampdowns that big private companies were. Strangely not. But that's what people mean though, isn't it? When they talk about emerging markets potentially behaving in a different way to developed markets. And I think that's true. And I think if you do have state-owned enterprises which are given a kind of unfair advantage, then perhaps there would be advantage for the stock pickers who realise that. But the fact is everybody's going to realise that. Yeah, and definitely at the sort of broad level of emerging markets, passive beats active. Yeah. Like we said, by more than it does in developed markets. So yeah, passive investing clearly works for emerging markets. It's just maybe in very small, inefficient corners of the markets, there's still potential for active outperformance. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.